All right, I'm here with Professor Mark Crispin Miller. He's Professor of Media Studies at NYU, and he's been in the news lately because of I, I, I struggle with how to describe this. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just quote from one of the latest pieces. This is from The Gothamist. Um, administrators at, at New York University had to step in after one of its professors allegedly told his students that masks were not effective in mitigating the spread of coronavirus. So, Professor Miller, what, what happened? Well, yeah, it's quite a story. It, it, it took me by surprise, although... Um, you know, on, on mature reflection, I realized it shouldn't have because I think something like this was bound to happen, um, especially lately. I teach a course on propaganda uh, every semester, really. And uh, it's a, a very, it's an exhilarating experience for me and eye-opening, albeit challenging for the students, because we don't treat propaganda as a as a kind of distant or abstract academic subject. We don't talk only about the Soviets and the Nazis. Uh, and we don't talk about something that happens only in China and North Korea. We focus on the history of propaganda as an Anglo-American invention, which which it was. Whether you're talking about political or commercial propaganda, Britain and the United States uh, basically perfected it. And it is of interest only insofar as it, as it pertains to ongoing propaganda drives or recent ones, you know, or drives that, that began some time ago, but that have had a lasting impact on the way we think and what we do and how we behave. So necessarily, I incorporate into each semester's course analysis of an ongoing propaganda drive. And I make clear to the students at the outset, we're going to be doing that, that the syllabus will be, or the course schedule will be flexible uh, because we're going to try to deal with things as, as they occur. I also tell them to be prepared for a, a difficult experience, not just intellectually difficult, but socially difficult and even psychologically difficult because genuine critical thinking entails the cultivation of one's own skepticism and real skepticism is not, is not an easy thing. It's very, very hard because you have to question narratives that you have long since taken for granted. And I've, I've gone through this myself. Everybody has. Um, I also tell them that I'm not an oracle, that I, anything I tell them uh, that may shock them uh, or startle them is something they should investigate themselves. I mean, I, I say verbatim, don't believe a single word I say, because I'm not here to indoctrinate you. I'm not here to propagandize. I'm here to set an example of a kind of um, free and rigorous inquiry that that an example that I hope you will learn to follow, uh, and not as students, right, and not as professionals, whatever profession you join, but as citizens, because everything depends on our being able to do this. So that's how it, each class begins. Now this semester, uh, I was forced to teach online, which I detest, and the students hated too. 
and this gets into the whole you know push push for us to live our lives online which i think is part of this covid uh crisis agenda i wanted to teach in person even though i'm 70 and i have lyme disease um and i know enough about the coronavirus to understand that you're not going to drop dead from being in the same room with uh with uh, students or at this point really anybody if your immune system is fairly strong and you're you're prudent you know i offered i i can't wear a mask uh for you know an hour and a quarter or for you know almost uh, three hours in the master's course that i was supposed to teach so i offered to wear a face shield and apparently i wasn't the only person in the steinhardt school of education which is where i teach who made that request and all of our requests were denied okay this meant that I had to teach online. It was just as well because this meant I didn't have to get tested repeatedly uh, and so on. All right, so I'm, I'm teaching this course online. And I made clear to them at the start that, that we absolutely must focus on the COVID crisis because, you know, in my scholarly opinion, it is the most successful propaganda drive in. I think in American history and in modern history, maybe in world history, because it is a global drive. And uh, we'll get into this a little later, but it's, it's been extraordinarily successful at terrorizing uh, people and, and, and that uh, educated people seem to be the most susceptible to it. And I didn't say all that, but I just said, look at where we are. Look at how we're having this class, Right. Look at how uh, NYU is urging you to snitch on each other if you congregate publicly. Um, there, there is no way we cannot talk about this. All right. So the course is structured to take us through the history of propaganda, but also digress into discussions of various aspects of, of the crisis and so on. So this one student uh, joined the class late. She missed the first week. I think she missed the first there's two, two meetings a week. She missed the first three, I believe. And when she emailed me, she seemed very enthusiastic about taking it and so on. Um, and I welcomed her. I mean, I, I like to teach as many students as possible. And she uh, participated in the first discussion, um, which was about uh, Edward Bernays' classic book, Propaganda, from 1928. And um, then uh, either in that class or in the next one, we resumed discussion that had begun the first week of masks, face masks. And I said then or referred back to um, the eight randomized controlled studies that have found that masks are ineffective at preventing the transmission of respiratory viruses. That represents a solid consensus uh, based on the most rigorous scientific tests of, of mask wearing among healthcare professionals. This is over the last 15 years or so. Okay, so since this whole thing started, there are a lot of bogus, uh, you know, bought and paid for uh, studies, uh, observational studies, computer models, uh, visualizations. Uh, suggesting that masks do work or potentially may work, something like that. 
Okay, and then you look at the uh, scientific reviews of these studies, and you'll see that they're very poor. You know, these studies are faulted for their sloppiness, their uh, dubious data. And you, you look even deeper, and this is the kind of thing you have to do when you're studying propaganda. You look at the, the, the authors of, of this study and where they teach, right? And you see that the universities they teach at receive millions and millions of dollars from the Gates Foundation, or they have lucrative uh, contracts with Big Pharma. So there's, there's a con- there are conflicts of interest there. Okay, I, I, I said all this. And there were, you know, there's one student in particular who is, who is you know, who tends to disagree uh, with, with things I say or, or to, I don't know, take issue with them. And, and that's fine. I mean, I welcome that. And, and we, we had Frank, Frank back and forth. I then sent them links to these articles and others, including an interview. Uh, I'm sorry, including a, a video of a debate over the subject uh, between Denis Rancourt, the um, uh, C- Canadian scientist who published a summary of seven of these studies in April. Uh, very rigorous. This is a guy with a superlative track record as a as a researcher and scientist. He was attacked in Psychology Today by this uh, logic professor at some college, I think, in Pennsylvania. A really venomous, uh, ad hominem, livid uh, attack. And Rancourt asked to debate him, and they had a debate, which is instructive. Uh, I sent them the link to the debate. So the, this, I think, was all on a Thursday. And then the following Tuesday, I got a call from my chair asking me if it was true that I had questioned the effectiveness of masks in my course. And I said, yeah. What I did was I shared and, and, and discussed the scientific evidence that they're ineffective. And I think I pointed out as well that the CDC and Dr. Fauci and the WHO all agreed with that consensus uh, early in the crisis, very publicly stating that healthy people should not wear masks. Then they all pivoted, uh, you know, uh, Fauci and the CDC pivoted, I think, in April, and the WHO pivoted in June, and suddenly everybody had to wear a mask. So I told him this. So he made clear that he was asking on behalf of the dean. They wanted to know if this was true. And he said a student had, ob- had objected. And there were, I, I guess she was tweeting, he said. I, I think I have the chronology here right. Uh, and I hadn't seen the tweets or anything. And then the next thing I know, I'm, I'm hearing from old friends in the academy elsewhere who've heard about these tweets and are concerned about me. And they want to know what's up. And uh, this Twitter war starts raging around her tweets. You know, many people attacking her, many people attacking me. And then the press got into it. And the Gothamist piece uh, came out, you know, very snarky, ill-informed, misleading piece. I have to say that the pieces by NBC News, local NBC, and the New York Post were very even-handed. I sit, Now, let me explain something uh, so you'll understand how I even was involved in Twitter at all. I have this listserv, News from Underground, that I 
you know, uh, daily send out many, many pieces too. Uh, and let me just say, I've, I've subscribed to that. And just for listeners, I, I really recommend, you've got some great content that you're putting out. Um, well, that's you. some really, really good stuff. Well, I think that that's the problem here, as I'll explain. Um, uh, if you go to my website, markcrispinmiller.com, you can sign up and either choose a daily digest, which is less of a barrage, or you can get each email as I send it. And it is, you know, just information that the press has blacked out or misreported information from abroad, blogs by uh, scientists, epidemiologists, medical journal articles, you know, my own commentary on, on various things. And it isn't just about COVID, although it, it is primarily about that now, which is something to bear in mind. So I, I sent my list, um, a, a, and this is before I'd even read the tweets, I, 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 I sent them a, a statement saying that I'm, I've been told that a student is dis- displeased by my discussing the evidence that masks don't work. I made a statement on academic freedom and on the necessity of questioning official narratives. Uh, and this, I should add, was after uh, the dean of the school and the doctor who advises the school on its COVID policies actually emailed my students. They didn't put me on copy. They emailed my students with a sense of alarm, basically saying that they respect academic freedom, but, uh, you know, this is troubling, and uh, I had raised this um, possibility that the evidence suggests masks don't work. And so they wanted them to pay attention to an authoritative source. That was their word, and that was the CDC. But you didn't and get a copy of this. You, you didn't? No, no, I didn't. I, I, one of the students sent it to me, and they didn't send it to me. And when you click on the CDC link, there's a list of these studies that I've mentioned before, these, these ludicrous, basically propaganda concoctions that make vague cases that, yeah, masks work. You know. And then they ended by reminding the students that there's a strict mask mandate at uh, NYU, which, which I, I am well aware of. And I have to be very clear, I did not say, in fact, I said pointedly to them, I am not telling you not to wear masks. Okay, I'm not saying that. I observe the rules on campus and, you know, I'm not telling you to break those rules. I'm simply asking you to think about their basis. I mean, this is a university. We're supposed to be thinking about things. That I even have to tell you this, that I even have to say this is, is, is very disheartening. Okay. Anyway, this thing you know, blew up and my chair then emailed me with a selection of some of the tweets attacking this young woman. And he asked me, do you want to be part of this? I, I, I really had trouble understanding what he was asking me. And then we had a, a, a more detailed exchange in which he said, I should call these people off because this poor girl's being abused, you know. He didn't write to her and say, can you call off, you know, your followers because they're abusing Professor Miller. And he, and he, he, he was um, defensive of her. Oh, I forgot the most important thing. He tweeted in support of her, my chair. 
She wow. demanded. She, wow. she demanded. I, I've I've skipped the, the 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 most shocking part of it. She demanded that NYU fire me. Right. Okay, that was the gist of her tweets. That 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 NYU should relieve me of my responsibilities because of what she called my unhealthy skepticism toward health professionals. Okay. That phrase by itself. That Ugh. that means that. You know, Oceania is here. I mean, as in 1984, unhealthy skepticism towards health professionals. You know, I invoked, um, you know, scientific studies by health professionals to make my case. Right. And the health professionals at the CDC had agreed with that. But I'm, you know, a monster because I'm trying to get them killed and so on. And then she went to my website. See, everything that I send my list ends up on the website. And the subject lines all go up on Twitter. So, Mm -hmm. no, I have, I don't know, about 20,000 Twitter followers. Oh, I'm shadow banned there. So just a a fraction of them actually know when I've tweeted anything. Same thing on Facebook. And my chair was um, basically accusing me of having brought this on because I used to describe her tweets in my statement on it that I sent my list before I'd, you know, uh, I, I said that they appear to be pretty venomous because I knew she was calling for me to be fired. He said, my use of the word venomous had incited this tweet storm against her. Hmm. Okay. 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 This guy is not in my corner. Uh, That's nothing new because chairs, department chairs at NYU uh, have long since ceased to represent the faculty to the administration. They represent the administration to the faculty. And this gets into the nature of NYU, uh, where I've been since 1997, and my history there, which I'll get into and which is probably relevant as well. At any rate, that's what happened. Um, And it's still uh, resonating. This piece just came out last night on City and State, which is a New York City-based um, uh, website for news, mainly about uh, state law and real estate issues, and real estate interests run New York. And, and it was the week's biggest winners and losers, and I was one of the three uh, losers, and, and, and readers or visitors to the site were invited to uh, vote on who was the biggest loser and there was a snarky and completely fantastic uh, account uh, claiming that I had compared Bush to Hitler or claiming that I had been accused of comparing Bush to Hitler and accused of claiming 9-11 is an inside job. Well, you know, that's, that's an inference drawn by about half the American people and one that the evidence strongly suggests is true. To put that together with the claim that Bush is like Hitler, is this is a common propaganda tactic of jamming things together, you know, mm-hmm. to make a perfectly legitimate position sound insane. Yeah. So they'll mention flat earth. You know, you question the safety of vaccines, they'll say, oh, you probably believe the earth is flat. This, this is a kind of propaganda that I'm well acquainted with and that we discuss in class. So that's what city and state did. And, and you know, gratifyingly, a number of my uh, subscribers uh, posted comments in my defense, but this is not about me, though, and that's why we're doing this show. I, I am, I think, at risk at NYU 
as academics throughout the West, especially in the US and Canada, who and Britain, who publicly uh, dispute official narratives of all kinds, are targeted for defamation in the media, uh, you know, punishment by their host institutions, and in some cases, even firing. Okay, this is, this is alarmingly common. And I, 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 I formerly, I, in, in my, you know, sort of blithe ignorance of what was going on, assumed I was safe because I'm tenured. But I realize now that, that uh, I'm not. And if you don't mind, I'll tell you what happened before this. Yeah, I'd be interested yeah, to hear. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear. Okay. Just this year, there were, there were three attempts um, on me here at NYU. And uh, the first one was mentioned by a tweet attacking me in, in that thread by the student. Suddenly, I think this was in February, maybe, I got an email from the uh, OEO, you know, the office that oversees um, equity complaints and stuff like that, bias incidents, okay. hate speech, telling me that they wanted me to come to a meeting because my conduct had come under scrutiny. I couldn't imagine what this meant. What, had I hit on a student? I mean, had I called somebody... Uh, you know, used a racial, I, I didn't know what this was about. So I asked, I said, well, what, what, what is it? Uh, if I may be told. <laughs> and they said it had to do with my views on, I think, gender equity or something like that, gender something or other. And I had to, you know, hire a, a retain a law firm to advise me, which cost me $6,000 that I can't afford because of my, you know, medical, medical expenses. And they gave me advice and they wrote a letter to NYU and they asked if one of them could come to the meeting and, you know, they were told that they could not. And I had to be there by myself. So I think in March, I went in and it turned out that a colleague of mine in the department had been sent by some other colleague. Now, I know the colleague who sent the complaint. I don't know the one who sent her what she was complaining about. What she was complaining about were three things I'd posted online. One was a, a very short meditation, like a little essay of mine that I had sent to my list and that I guess ended up on Twitter called Transgenderism and Eugenics. And it made the point, and I'm not talking about transgender persons. I'm talking about the, the movement which is funded by uh, billionaires like Warren Buffett and uh, George Soros and others with, with deep interests in uh, the medical industrial complex and big pharma, and which is all about radical medical intervention in the sexual development of children, which I think is a crime against humanity, which is also profoundly and often viciously anti-feminist and is about, you know, insisting that biological males be admitted to women's shelters and women's prisons and be allowed to compete in girls' and women's athletic events. You know, and it's also homophobic because, 
you know, transgender medicine essentially argues that if your kid, you know, if your boy is effeminate, plays with dolls, he should probably be a girl, right? Instead of a, growing up to be a, an unmutilated gay adult. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, I explained all this to the two lawyers at the OEO. I also pointed out to them that um, I am not in any way transphobic. And I noted that we had just hired somebody in the department to teach transgender theory. And I had written this, uh, well, she prefers the pronoun they. So I'd written them, uh, welcoming them to the department very cordially saying I look forward to our having some, you know, conversations on subjects of mutual interest. She answered, it was perfectly friendly. I pointed this out to them. And I could tell quickly that they could see that I'm not transphobic, right? That this was just a fantasy. And at the end of the meeting, they said, um, well, we'll let you know next week whether we're going to proceed but they emailed me the next day and they said, we're dropping this. Okay, so that happened. Then, all right, so that we could ascribe that to the overzealousness of a social justice warrior on the faculty. But then what happened, I think this was in June, and this is a few months after I had started posting prolifically on the COVID crisis. This is important. And NYU is heavily into vaccines, you know, which they push in every possible way. They now require all the personnel at the medical school, even receptionists, I mean, even researchers who never deal with patients to get flu shots. And this is the subject of a lawsuit by some nurses. And whenever a student goes to the infirmary for like a sprained ankle or something, they always try to push them to get flu shots, right? So NYU is, is one of many vaccine universities. And in my classes, we, for the last several years, we have devoted a week or two to the vaccine propaganda, right? So suddenly I get this email from my chair saying, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we got these four negative reviews of your master's course on propaganda and this course had been taught the previous semester. This was last fall. And all of a sudden, he comes up with four, or he's been given four one-sentence negative reviews, you know, anonymous, uh, claiming that I'm a conspiracy theorist and that uh, I wouldn't listen to anybody's viewpoint but my own. You know, all these things were just demonstrably false. So, so wait, these reviews were not, they weren't confirmed to have been made by students. They, they, well, made no, by they, were, they were alleged to have been made by students, but he, the chair said, these, these aren't from any student evaluations. <laughs> so I have no idea where they came from. And I, and I have no reason to believe they were authentic hmm. either. So my, my, my first impulse, you know, I got all hot under the collar and I started rebutting them. And I realized this just sounds defensive. Um, this is a waste of time. So what I did instead was I, I compiled a couple, do- I sent this to my listserv, this whole exchange. I compiled a few dozen 
emails that I'd received from students in that course and other propaganda courses over the past year or so. I mean, it, it, they, they brought tears to my eyes to read them all together because they are uh, extremely grateful. They thanked me for helping open their eyes. Many said it was the best class they'd taken at NYU. Many of them had gone on to take other of my classes. I also teach film. And um, this made pretty, that's the context in which these four alleged nasty reviews should be taken. And I think dismissed. So then I, I told him, I, I believe that there is an attempt to get rid of me here. All right. And then sure enough, this thing blew up all of a sudden. Now, the, the, the student who tweeted that I should be fired is an extremely zealous uh, BLM supporter, you know, defund the police, smash capitalism, right? This is a privileged uh, white girl. And um, so it's entirely possible that she's just an avid, a devout believer in the COVID narrative and uh, was, you know, deeply offended that I had even dared to question the orthodoxy Although as the other student, you know, my class discussed all this and they, several of them were bemused that she didn't say anything in the class on masks. She could have spoken up, but she didn't. She was silent. She was stonily silent. I, I think back now. Uh, so it's, you know, it's possible that she just did this on her own, you know, spontaneously. Uh, and she contacted the bias, she called the bias hotline she said in one of her tweets, which, uh, what am I biased against health professionals? I mean, there's no bias. And, and they had told her properly that they could take no action against the professor for the content that he teaches in his classes. And this infuriated her. And she complained that, that she was put off by an NYU official. And I think this is what prompted my chair to write and tell her, that they would make this a priority. That was the language he used. She had asked that I be fired, and he tweets saying that we'll make this a priority. So I think that while it may have been a spontaneous act on her part, I, I cannot believe, understanding propaganda as I do, that the way the tweet took off and the way the media jumped on board, I, I don't believe that happened naturally. See, I think that this was uh, ginned up uh, to my detriment. Because the thing about propaganda, one of the things I make clear at the very beginning of the class, and that we all must understand, is that propaganda does not want any argument. Okay? It's not like oratory. I mean, the formal course title is Mass Persuasion and Propaganda. I think that's a misnomer. Because... Propaganda is not mass persuasion. Persuasion refers to oratory, right, in ancient Greece and Rome, where there would be different speakers propounding different positions and the audience would make up its mind as to which one to believe. That's not what propaganda wants. Propaganda wants to monopolize the space. It wants no disagreement. It wants no contradiction. And it will do everything it can to prevent it. You know, you'll notice that Bill Gates, uh, the world's doctor, 
you know, without a medical or no medical or training at all. No, right, or, or even an undergraduate degree. Uh, he's now this big authority, and I remember during the um, attacks on Andy Wakefield uh, over his study, noting a correlation between the MMR vaccine and autism in children. The Gates was there. I think to, uh, Anderson oh. Cooper, some other shill, you know, tearing into Dr. Wakefield. Uh, he has badmouthed Bobby Kennedy uh, in meetings with Trump. And this is a matter of public record. Would Gates ever debate either of these guys? <laughs> Never in a million years. Gates can't be challenged. He's very thin-skinned. He also is completely self-interested and um, there's much worse to say about what he's doing. But the point is his intolerance of disagreement is typical of propaganda generally, that it does not want anyone to cast a shadow on its narratives. Right. And that's that's one of the things that really strikes me. I, I mentioned that I've been watching the um, the videos from Event 201. And to me, watching that, um, it's it's really like watching a dystopian television show um, of, you know, something cast in the future where people have been, you know, conditioned to believe that there is one authoritative source of the truth and that these people are it. And, um, you know, what I'd like you to talk about a little bit is whether you think, are, are we there? Are we at this point where the vast majority of people really believe that there is an authoritative source of the truth and we're, we're to listen to that rather than to engage in discourse? Oh, uh, uh, yeah. I don't know if it's a vast majority, but it is certainly the vast majority of uh, edu- educated people and, and what we inaccurately call the left, okay, liberals and progressives. Uh, they are... Uh, they are uh, zealots on the subject, and I think would be f- are far likelier to agree with the student who attacked me than with me. And I'm sure a, a, an alarmingly high number of them would like to see me fired because the left now, so-called left, is heavily into censorship, as they are uh, war supporters. They're pro-war. And they detest the working class, the white working class, you know. Uh, So it's not a left that I recognize. I agree with Bobby Kennedy Jr. about this. I mean, this is left is unrecognizable. But I think I can explain what's happened. I mean, insofar as it's rationally explicable. Propaganda depends for its most effective work on fear. Okay, modern propaganda dates from World War I. This is the first time that states engage in the systematic um, incitement of their populations, specifically the, uh, the UK, Britain, and the United States. Uh, they had to do this to uh, win popular support for a, a war that no, nobody really understood the reasons for, because the reasons were kept secret, and a war that was going to be an unprecedented slaughter because it involved such technical innovations as barbed wire and tanks 
and poison gas and landmines. And we can add to the list of lethal innovations from that war, modern propaganda. I mean, governments have been doing propaganda for centuries, but now it was a real science with a tremendous amount of technical advantages. So the, the British were extraordinarily uh, adept at this and taught Hitler plenty. I mean, he says this in Mein Kampf, that he learned about proper propaganda practice from the British. It's based on fear, fear and anger, okay? So you, you, are, you are deliberately and systematically filled with dread and hatred. Uh, for a long time, dread and hatred of some enemy, some national enemy. So it was the Hun, right? They called the Germans the Huns, even though Germany was the last to mobilize and did everything it could to avoid the war, they were cast as the aggressors and they invented all these ludicrous stories of, you know, German soldiers impaling Belgian babies on bayonets and cutting the breasts off of nurses and all this baloney that they made up. And they made it up with the help of some of England's leading literary lights, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle took part in this and others. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was called the Bryce Committee, B-R-Y-C-E. Lord Bryce ran this committee that sort of oversaw the, uh, uh, these bogus depositions with supposed eyewitnesses to these atrocities. And, and the New York Times, let me say, went ape with this. They ran with this. They, they have a really sordid history, the Times does, mm-hmm. of, of jumping headlong into every major propaganda drive the state has waged since then and probably before then. They also played down the Holocaust scandalously for complicated reasons. There's a whole book about this called Buried by the Times by Laurel Leff. Very good book. They also were pro-Stalin throughout the 30s. You know, they were apologists for Stalin. So, and we're supposed to believe them now, right? Anyway, uh, it's been a, you know, a gradual advance in sophistication in the use of this fear-mongering tactic over the decades, as the elites have also become more unified globally, uh, wealthier and more powerful, and I think more intent on making the big jump to total global control. I think that, that that's what we're seeing now. So it was one thing to demonize Germany or you know, Japan after Pearl Harbor. Uh, or any national enemy, you know, uh, throughout the Cold War, do it to the Soviets, etc. I mean, that's, you know, familiar to us. There was a, a big, we say a great leap forward with 9-11, because we now went from fearing some particular nation or the communists who were already imagined as being under every bed, you know, in the 50s, at a time when there were very few actual members of the Communist Party. And I think half of them were FBI agents. Now it was terrorism. It was terror, the war on terror. 
terror is even more imprecise than communism. It's not really an ideology. Terror, the war on terror, what is that? And where are they? Who are they? Well, they could be anywhere. They'll be sending us uh, anthrax in the mail. They'll be carrying nuclear weapons and suitcases. So that was, that was the beginning of exacting mass compliance to you know, onerous travel restrictions and taking your shoes off at the airport and stuff like that. So even then already, educated people were shying away from asking any questions about that. But some did. But this is, this is a whole new ballgame, Bertine. This is terror of the virus, okay? The virus, the dreaded coronavirus, which could be anywhere, which could be on any surface, which could be floating in any air that you might pass through, including out in the sunlight in the street. Somebody could jog past you and infect you with this fatal virus. This is all fantasy, okay? I don't doubt the existence of COVID-19. I don't think anybody knows exactly what it is yet, whether it's actually a virus at all or something else, some kind of lab-created concoction. I mean, Luc Montagnier, the Nobelist in France who you know won that prize for his work on the HIV virus, examined what they're calling COVID-19 and found in it bits of um, HIV inserted into it, which proves that it can't possibly have emerged from, you know, bat soup in the wet market in Wuhan. That story comes right out of the ending of the movie Contagion, if anybody has seen that. I mean, it's a Mm -hmm. propaganda film, you know, extolling the CDC and you know, anticipating the crisis we're going through now. So now it's so frightening that we're being told that we can't congregate at all, unless we're protesting, um, you know, police killing a black, that somehow BLM supporters don't get COVID-19 or transmitted. But any other congregation is forbidden. Certainly any protests against lockdowns are forbidden. But going to church is forbidden. Going to synagogue is forbidden. Any worship is forbidden, unless you're home alone. Uh, weddings are forbidden. Funerals are forbidden. Do you think uh, that? Do you think that hypocrisy there is deliberate? That there's, it's so to me. It's so it's so blatant that you know we're forbidden from from worshiping, from gathering in, in peaceful demonstrations for other topics. But these mass protests, the BLM protests, and even the riots are able to to continue. That's something that seems to hit. Everyone sees that. Everyone recognize, or I should say, a lot of people recognize that hypocrisy. Do you, you know, in in your studies of propaganda and of how powerful people sort of make impose their will on others, is there anything to the idea that it's a deliberate, like, shoving our faces in it, sort of, that... Well, there are, there are some things that would lead one to draw that conclusion, you know, uh, some things that are so blatantly untrue, you know, or so perverse, 
you know, that, that you think they must be laughing at us, right? I'm thinking of H.R. 6666 legislation that Bill Gates negotiated with um, Bobby Rush, the, the former Black Panther Party member who was a representative from Chicago, six months before the pandemic for a $100 billion contact tracing program. HR six 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 six. I mean, wh- why pick that number? Right, right, that, right. And there's, I've heard of COVID nineteen eighty four. I mean, you know, there are all these things that are like, they're, you know, they're kind of doing this. But I don't think that the exemption, the BLM exemption, is exactly is hypocrisy exactly because I I think that what we're going through this year, what this whole year has been has been a systematic serial attack on human society and the economy, the offline economy, mm-hmm. the independent retail economy, yep. the uh, lockdowns, which were both, which were based on two wildly inaccurate computer models at the university of Washington and Imperial college London by outfits, both of which the Gates foundation has right. funded. Right. The lockdowns have, they dealt a body blow to the economy. And I'm talking to you from New York City, which, oh, yeah. you know, it's still kind of lively in the streets, but it's basically kind of a dead city. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough, I don't think. I think that the George Floyd incident and the explosions following it were the second round in, in this attempt to, well, to do two things, really. One is to divide us, because mm-hmm. division is crucial for imperial control, which the Romans understood, the British understood. This is an ancient imperial strategy for uh, preempting opposition by the masses. I mean, the, the, the way that the COVID thing has been politicized already has done that, and the masks do that, too, yeah. because the masked detest the unmasked and attack them and turn them in. And, and um, I, I wrote this big essay on, uh, it's called Masking Ourselves to Death, and I go over I the, read that. I'm going to link to that. That was a phenomenal essay. Um, I'm going to, yeah, I feel like you really nailed what's what's going on just psychologically and socially with the, with the whole mass yeah 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 thank yeah i want your, uh, your listeners and viewers to to read that because one of the things it demonstrates is that the, the the amount of violence and the brutality against unmasked people is vastly greater than violence by masked uh, unmasked people i hope i put that clearly yeah yeah but the press the press has only reported the latter you know, a few mm-hmm. incidents, uh, really unfortunate, if true, of uh, employees here and there trying to enforce mask rules and then getting attacked or killed and so on. But that's the only thing the New York Times readers have heard of, right? right? Uh, anyway, COVID-19 has been completely divisive. The whole scientific discussion is completely partisan. If you... I'm, and I'm sure this explains why this young woman tweeted so furiously. If you question the effectiveness of masks, or if you note the copious evidence that hydroxychloroquine at the proper dose with the right, uh, uh, you know, with, with zinc and azithromycin, that it works. 
saves countless lives, has saved countless lives. You even point mm-hmm. that out, people will say, oh, you must be a Trump supporter. I mean, right. this, this is right. beyond idiotic, but it, uh, I, you know, in a way predictable because of his you know, installation. I don't believe he was actually elected. That, that's a whole nother thing, all right? I don't even think he wanted to be elected, <laughs> but, but he is, he is um, you know, the great divider but it takes two to tango and, and the so-called resistance is just as divisive as he is and just as abject as his followers who believe every word he said because the resistance believes the opposite of right. every word he said. Right. So th- this, is, this is divisive. The BLM thing was profoundly and violently divisive. Uh, and uh, also hugely destructive. I'm not talking about the protests, you know. I've seen those. Uh, a lot of them took place here in New York. Um, they were peaceful. And the police were beating the crap out of those protesters and journalists. Hmm. Meanwhile, in the wake of the protests, there was flagrant vandalism, arson, property destruction, and the cops were standing down. This is, this is demonstrable. You know, I mean, people hmm. all over Twitter posted videos, showed the Boston police setting out bricks from a police car, right, near a protest. So this then destroyed what was left of the economy in like Minneapolis, mm-hmm. or Portland, or Kenosha. These, these places are like, uh, they look like Beirut, right? The media doesn't report any of this. They cover this up and they keep screaming about white supremacists. They, you know, just an important digression here. It's not really a digression. It's a point of information. And that is that anyone who has bothered to study the history of the CIA abroad and color revolutions and how you bring down a government. Okay. And, and, and our educated people don't study all of that because it's conspiracy theory and the press doesn't report it either. Okay. But, you know, it happened in, in, in Kiev, it happened, you know, decades before in Tehran, it happened in Guatemala, um, it's happened over and over and over again. And, and what they have often done is orchestrate pitched battles between two sides. In Tehran mm-hmm. in 53, there were communists fighting anti-communists in the street. And it now turns out that both sides were just gangsters paid by the CIA hmm. to play act political adversaries. This was all part of the attempt to, you know, rock and end the government of Mohammed Mossadegh, you know, hmm. for the benefit of British and American oil interests and so on. All right. If people knew this, the press reported it, if the schools taught it as it should be taught, as it should be reported, uh, people would be less inclined immediately to take sides with either BLM and Antifa or with the white supremacists, you know, uh, because taking sides is what they want us to do because then we're at each other's throats and ignore the The unprecedented predation from on high. You know, it's it's really brilliant, uh, you know, horribly cynical, evil, but it's brilliant. So it, it has, works. It, wor- it works. It, it works. So it isn't just hypocrisy. 
the exemption for BLM is just further a further uh, uh, means of division and a way to further demonize people who protest the lockdowns. Okay, because they are mm-hmm. they're Nazis. You know, they're neo Nazis. When Bobby Kennedy addressed that enormous gathering in Berlin yeah. a few weeks ago, which was really heartening. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there is real mass resistance in many other countries. Okay. There was a small incident outside the Reichstag where neo-Nazis apparently stormed it. And this was heavily covered. All right. If you can't see that that was a psyop, that that was theater, then all I can say is you have a lot to learn. You know, this was a way to sort of by implication suggest that all those protesting the lockdowns were Nazis, were far rightists. And we hear this when people protest the lockdowns in this country, because there was a similarly high profile incident in Lansing, Michigan, when a bunch of, uh, you know, armed white supremacists stormed the state house. And I think they had guns. Oh, was this before COVID? Was this, this was during the uh, vaccine legislation or was this something else? No, this was over uh, Governor Whitmer's. uh, Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. I was thinking, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so everybody, yeah. So, the, so that means, ergo, everybody protesting the lockdown is a fascist. I mean, they're not not just a fascist, but like a Nazi and a Klansman. And there was a. I talk about this in the essay. There was this. Um, uh, this is in the second part of the essay that, that I haven't finished yet. There was a, a panel on MSNBC. Uh, five black people and Dave Zirin, the progressive sports writer for the nation. He has his own website. He was the good white man on the panel. And the consensus of the panel was that the people protesting the lockdowns actually were trying to kill more black and brown people. I mean, I mean, some of the panelists actually said that. Wow. That people who are out of work, first of all, they were black wow. people at any of these protests because they like to make a living too. Right. Not to mention, what is it, 40% of, of black owned businesses are, are gone forever yes. now? I mean. Right, right. right. Well, the, the panelists were all employees of the media or academia. Right. So they, they're right. living in the bubble of the privileged, you know, who can, who can pontificate about uh, black lives mattering and so on. Nobody's. I can't imagine even the most fervent racist caring more about having the lockdowns end so he can breathe on black people and kill them than in just get, getting a job, you know, having a way to support his family. Right. I mean, I mean it's, it's just insane. Uh, and that is a good example of the propaganda that's used to politicize the whole thing, uh, conceal what's really going on. and. Um, keep us at each other's throats so that we don't confront together what's actually going on. Let, let me well, add is, something. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I just, I just, I just, why is it so effective? Why, why have we not, you know, we've studied world war two and we've, we've looked at all the, the crazy propaganda against, you know, the Japanese and the Germans, and we laugh at it. Why does it still work? Well, that's just it. You see, Bertine, that's just it. Those are historically remote. Mm-hmm. It's very, very easy to see all that as propaganda now, right? The, 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 the crucial capacity is to be able to see it as it's working in the present. You know, propaganda, it's all, I tell the class at the beginning, 
it's easy for us to spot propaganda that we don't agree with. Mm. See, so, so you ask most liberals, any liberal, what's, what's an example of propaganda? They'll say, oh, Fox News. Well, Fox News is very propagandistic, although I, I have to add that on the COVID thing, they've actually done far better reporting than the New York Times. Um, I never thought I'd hear myself <laughs> saying so, but uh, I've been on Fox. I mean, I, 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 I mean, and it was always adversarial. Uh, you know, I, I wrote two books on the Bush-Cheney nightmare and a book on the theft of the 2004 election. I'm on a right-wing blacklist called Professor Watchlist, which was compiled last year, alphabetized by first names. So it's not the most sophisticated thing in the world. But, um, you know, to be, for me to be saying that Fox is, is a far more reliable outlet on this crisis than the Times is, is you know, really pretty significant. But we can't, we can't see it because it's happening to us and it's successfully pushing our buttons, I should say, the buttons of the left. There's something to add here. It's very, very important. And it's, it's in Ernest Becker's classic book, The Denial of Death, which he published in 1973. You know, that, that we, this civilization, denies death. They live in constant neurotic denial of the fact of death. And we are somehow led to believe that it doesn't have to happen to us. This pandemic, which is not really, it doesn't actually rise to the level of a pandemic for, you know, epidemiological reasons. But this crisis, which has people convinced they're going to die, which has people somehow thinking that nobody dies of anything else, that it's the cause of death so that they're actually indifferent to the countless deaths that have been caused and are being caused by the lockdown, you know, mm -hmm. through hunger, suicide, drug overdose, domestic violence, despair, loneliness, medical neglect. I mean, this is taking a catastrophic toll on countless people, exponentially more people than have succumbed to COVID-19. But all these people hysterical with fear over it. And I'm talking about educated people. I'm talking even about some progressive activists I know. They think that this is the big, this is death, right? The Grim Reaper is COVID-19. And Becker makes the point that when you're in the grip of the fear of death, it causes you to embrace your preconceptions even more tightly. You become more firmly wedded to your assumptions and beliefs, your kind of tribal feelings. And of course, when we're traumatized, we naturally turn to authoritative voices for some kind of assurance, some kind of advice as to what we can do. So, so it's like we become children to? again. Totally. That's exactly it. It's infantilizing. We become children. We want mommy and daddy to protect us. We'll do whatever they say. We'll put on a mask everywhere we go, you know, regardless of the evidence that that's actually a very dangerous practice for healthy people. You know, as I note in the essay, three teenagers in China who were running laps in their gym classes with masks on dropped dead uh, yeah. in the late spring. And this was reported throughout China and Japan. 
And I also had a Chinese student find three other news items in China about three adults, two of whom were doing their morning exercises in masks and dropped dead, and one of whom slipped into a coma. May still may be dead by now. I have no idea. This news was covered in Asia, but not mm-hmm. here. Why not? You know, why is it that it's okay to demand that asthmatics and diabetics and people with low blood pressure or hypertension or um, COPD, uh, you know, all kinds of cardiovascular diseases, heart conditions, why should they have to be wearing masks when OSHA? You just go on the OSHA website, has very strict stipulations about the workplace and what populations should not be asked to mask. The media never mentions any of this. So these terrified people, you know, skulking through the streets with these black masks on, often in the heat, they see somebody without a mask on and their, their instinct is to attack them and shame them, scold them and report them. This is beyond grotesque. You know, this is, this is the opposite of what a government that cares about the health of its people would do. There are many other things that the government does that are the opposite of what it should do. It should not have been discrediting hydroxychloroquine, which works. Okay. It is demonstrably effective. I personally know two people who were gravely ill with COVID-19 and recovered hmm. with, uh, you know, that's of course anecdotal, but there no, are, but there now, are studies, there are studies, there's the experience of the countries in, in, well, throughout the world, comparing the ones that have used it and the ones that haven't, you know, no the comparison. information's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's copious and uh, there are hospitals in the U S where they use it and they have not lost a single patient. There's one in Houston, mm-hmm which was the subject of a news segment on local news, the, interviewing the doctor uh, there. These people were extremely sick and no one died. They didn't put them on ventilators, you know, which tend to kill right. nine out of 10 people who get intubated. And they put them on HCQ and, and, you know, steroids and zinc and, you know, other stuff. And they got better. They got well. Uh, the New York Times is not covering this, right? <laughs> but, but it's people like me who note that masks are ineffective based on the scientific evidence. It's people like me who are threatening everybody, putting everybody at risk. It's those of us, those of us who are questioning the policy Uh, for the sake of saving lives. We are treated as, um, as a menace, you know, as, as, as a menace. And that's, that's beyond perverse. You know, Uh, it has to turn around. Getting and back to your act, to your classroom experience, so there's this this one student who who missed the first few sessions of your class and then created this uproar. What has the response of your other students been to the whole mask thing and to the are are they generally more receptive than this one or kind of the same? No, no, no. They they are as I say. I have one student who's who's a. Um, staunchly skeptical of the claims I make, and I'm always engaging with him in the class and, uh, you know, sending him and the others things to read and so on. Uh, and, and, you know, things to read on both sides, but, but, but to be uh, cognizant of the weaknesses of, of the other side, you know. Um, I mean, his first impulse was to do what people do, which is to jump to Google and do a quick search 
And then whatever comes up first, which uh-huh. is invariably propaganda, right? Because of Google's algorithms, yeah. He'll 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 do this during class, you know. And I and I I you know I said, look, first of all, if we were meeting in person, I would say no cell phones or laptops in the classroom because I want everybody engaged and present. But second of all, you can't you can't do research in that quicky way, you know. It's not really research. It's just pushing a button and, 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 you know, expecting some valid information when the valid information has either been deleted or so deeply buried that it'll take you 20 minutes to find it. But having said that, I want to answer your question by saying that, that this is an unprecedented experience for me. Uh, I have had skeptical and resistant students before, and in the process of class discussion and research and them doing reports on certain subjects, they come around to seeing that the narratives they've believed in aren't true. And they do that for themselves. I don't talk them into it. You know, if I were doing that, I wouldn't be doing my job as a professor. My students are receptive. They're open-minded. I mean, they're kind of depressed, you know, having to take all their courses online and listless. I can't blame them for that but they're very interested. And um, that's been an extremely gratifying and hopeful thing for me because people that age used as they are to the internet, disinclined as they are to revere the New York Times and NPR. And above all, unintimidated as they are by the conspiracy theory meme, okay? They're open-minded. They don't really dismiss anything, however outlandish it may sound, just because it sounds outlandish. Whereas I find that older people are, are much more closed-minded. Now, I, I, I may be lucky, you know, there may be many more students like the one who's attacked me than I, than I realize. Um, and since, you know, there are students I know of who have snitched on students for like having seven friends over to dinner and so on, uh, there's no doubt that that is successful. I mean, it, it, it worked in East Germany. It, 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 it works in closed societies. Why wouldn't it work here? You know, people want to feel safe. They want to feel righteous. They think they're doing the right thing, you know? And I have to say that as the economy continues to collapse, there will be a far more willing cohort of uh, hirelings to, to contact tracing and yep. spying, yep. you know. Yep. It's one of the great dangers here. But this is, it's worse in places like New York City and, and other big cities, it's worse in Boston, you know, Philadelphia. I have to say the evidence suggests worse in in blue areas because I mean the right I'm not talking about the fascist right or the uh, militaristic right you know the pro FBI right I'm talking about the libertarian right you know they have the advantage of not instinctively trusting the the, the government you know, um, I mean, I've definitely gotten in touch with my inner libertarian throughout this whole experience. 
I now have rethought many things that I used to um, just take on faith. And I have a lot more respect for the um, thoughtful libertarian position than I used to. I mean, socialism that works for the rich is actually the danger here. You know, Andrew, Andrew Carnegie called himself a socialist. People don't seem huh. to know this. Because what, what he liked, what they like, what they like about China is the idea of con total control of the population by themselves. So they're plutocratic socialists. It's not socialism that's really about redistributing wealth. It's socialism, meaning the state controls everything. And I think that what, it, no, I, I want to rephrase this. This is not just what I think. This is what the documents tell us. This is what we learn if we look at the Great Reset by, you know, uh, what is it, Klaus Schwab or uh, Agenda 2030, UN Agenda 2030, or, or Agenda 21. They've got various programs the UN has, the Fourth Industrial Revolution. You, you can look into all this and see that the plan is to create uh, a dystopian state controlled by artificial intelligence, a state in which the surveillance will be so exquisite and pervasive that George Orwell would have been astonished by it. I mean, it makes the telescreens in 1984 look like, you know, this. this slingshots, you know, and uh, they want to depopulate the countrysides and uh, create mega cities, smart cities, mm -hmm. which, you know, the people screaming to defund the police don't seem to understand that the plan is evidently to create global police forces. Yeah. You know, the, the, the cops in Victoria Australia, where I'm pleased to say the authorities are, are pulling back, at least according oh, to Reuters. Oh, that's, that's yeah, fantastic. Reuters reported this um, just, I think, last night. Wow. I, I, I think there's pushback sufficient to get them to ease up. But their, their behavior, if you saw any of the videos of what they were yeah. doing, yeah. Was not just, it wasn't just brutal. There was something robotic and expressionless. It was, it was really uncanny. There was this one young woman, they started choking in the street. She's asthmatic and didn't have a mask on. And this enormous cop starts choking her with, uh, you know, the insistence of a young female officer. They didn't really look like regular cops, you know. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that they if this is an accurate story, which I have no reason to believe it isn't, oh, I'm still trying to verify it, they're from something called the Smart Cities Network, uh, which George Soros funds. And, and I want to say a word about him in a minute. So we're talking about a, a global police force that would replace the bad racist cops of, of regular municipalities, you know, with their annoying unions and so on. Uh, so instead of doing... I mean, there are things that one could do to improve policing in America, okay? One could... Um, replacing it with a global police force isn't one of those things, I don't exactly. think. Exactly. See, so, so 
I think that the, the, the plan here is to turn the world into a preserve for the super rich. And this isn't only about dividing people, but it's about culling the population. This is the darkest part of the story. We're talking about a depopulation effort, which Bill Gates has been fairly open, completely open about. Yep, yes. uh, you know, in his 2010 TED Talk, he said that the world population should be reduced by 10 to 15% through vaccination and what he calls reproductive health, which mm -hmm. means abortion. But he doesn't want the population to be reduced by such a small number. Uh, he has said in the past, and this has been scrubbed from the internet, he uses the expression, the golden billion, the golden billion. That, he thinks, is the ideal world population. Ted Turner, who is a rabid eugenicist, has said that the world population should be reduced by 95%. And this is the biggest landowner in the United States. This is a man with 2 million acres of land and huge herds of bison, right? And I should add five children, okay? <laughs> Gates has three. Bezos has three, plus an adopted daughter. Uh, Warren Buffett has three. So all these, all these people who profess to care so much about saving the earth really want the earth to be theirs, the population to be much smaller than it is and, and rendered docile through various means, chemical uh, and, um, you know, uh, cybernetic. They are crazy. These people are nuts. Uh, I think you probably have to be a little crazy to try to attain that much wealth. But whether or not that's the case, once you have that kind of wealth, you, you must become monstrous. You know, it's just a variant on the old axiom, you know, that Lord Acton articulated that all power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. The agenda that Gates and his syndicate are pushing, and his syndicate is really comprised of the Rockefellers, among others, the Windsors, you know, extremely rich uh, families. They want to. Um, control the global food supply. They want to, I mean, he, he wants to, you know, make the weather completely uh, subject to ge geoengineering. He believes that all education should be online, that life should be online. He has investments in these things. He thinks we should be eating lab-grown meat, which he's pushing, you know. I don't think there's any black mirror type innovation out there that Bill Gates has not invested in. Uh, and these are monstrous programs. These are, I'm, I don't hesitate to say, these are evil programs. To tell people they can no longer shake hands, to tell people they can no longer worship together, to tell people to have sex with masks and gloves on, okay? To have children sitting in masks and separated by plastic barriers and not allowed to have recess or eat lunch together. I mean, I'm, I'm going to become emotional in a minute about this. To have them over-vaccinated from the beginning with often fatal results and vaccinated or injected with substances that change their DNA, it's as if the Nazis didn't lose. 
And we have to understand the history of eugenics, right? The eugenics movement in this country was a movement that Adolf Hitler studied carefully and learned from. He was in correspondence with some of its leading figures. And this is all in Edwin Black's book, War Against the Weak. The Rockefellers and Carnegie and the Harriman family were huge funders of eugenics, which was on the one hand about encouraging the fit to have bigger families, as the Rockefellers have always done, but it also has involved forced sterilization or covert sterilization uh, and other means of uh, shrinking our numbers, okay? When Hitler was rising in Germany, the eugenicists were beside themselves with enthusiasm for what he was doing. The Rockefellers had actually funded some of Hitler's health officials' research. And one of them, Ernst Rudin, had a piece published in Margaret Sanger's journal, uh, her Planned Parenthood journal. But I forget the name of the magazine. Uh, Margaret Sanger was a rabid eugenicist, far less interested in women's rights than in ensuring that the unfit no longer reproduce. Okay, this was this was the consensus of the intellectual and uh, you know financial elite for decades here. Then the Holocaust happens, and that's a bit of an embarrassment for them. It didn't look good. Death camps, Zyklon B, dear to me, that's unattractive. So that with, a, with a few exceptions, some of the more you know, extreme ones, um, the movement kind of withdrew and rebranded itself, dropped the name eugenics, and reemerged as a movement for population control. And that started in, I think, 1952, uh, with the formation of the Population Council by the Rockefellers. And it was now dressed up as an environmental necessity. And, you know, they dusted off Thomas Malthus's weak thesis that uh, mathematically it was simply impossible for the poor to procreate unrestrained because the food supply is going to run out, which is even more untenable, you know, now that we know enough right. about proper agriculture and so on. It's just a, it's a myth, but it's been revived. And so eugenics now has a kind of green mantle that it wears. And, and Greta Thunberg and uh, Extinction Rebellion are right there. You know, they, they, that movement views humanity as the world's worst pollutant, you know, worse than CO2. So it's, it's very sinister. I mean, there is a legitimate environmental movement that's focused on things like glyphosate and, you know, uh, other pesticides and carcinogens in the water and the air. Fukushima, which never gets mentioned. Electromagnetic radiation, you know. Uh, where is Greta Thunberg on 5G, for example? Not a peep, right? Plastics in the ocean. These are all things that really are grave threats to the environment. That movement isn't talking about any of that. They want uh, to, and, and this again has to do with smashing the economy. They don't believe in economic growth and development. They don't believe that poor countries in Africa should have electricity and you know, develop to a modest extent 
so that they can improve their lives. They can have, you know, better water sanitation systems, which would do a lot more to alleviate disease than these toxic vaccines. Well, so and the lockdowns this, now are going to are going to set Africa back, you know, years if not decades in terms of. I mean, the, what was it? The UN is predicting an additional ten thousand deaths from starvation in in the third world because of this. I mean, actually, Bertine, according to researchers at Johns Hopkins, it's ten thousand children a month are dying worldwide. Whether they're right or wrong, I don't know. But right, I'm hoping they're wrong. But yeah. This is has, Johns Hopkins. This is not. Um, oh, I had heard it that came from the UN. Well, I, I, I maybe they were quoting. Um, the UN has has said something about this. Uh, the specific mm-hmm. figure I'm invoking comes from Hopkins. Okay. And I don't know that the UN would want necessarily to tell us exactly how bad it is because it's their policy on COVID that has created the problem you know, them and the World Health Organization. The UN is a captive organization, uh, as is the World Health Organization, as is the CDC. So this is, you know, this is really a revolutionary moment. That's more evident when you look at places like Germany and Britain, where they're actually rising up in resistance, and many other countries as well. But even then, you know, what what do we do? What, it's, it's, you know, it's great to see what was happening in, in London this, this weekend and in, in Berlin. And, you know, there's been some scattered demonstrations here in the U.S. But I feel that, you know, this, this is, as you've just sort of described, this is a huge cabal of power that we're up against. What can we possibly do? Well, I think... I mean, there's two ways to answer that. One is to get ready to head for the hills, which which people are doing, and may not be a bad idea. But the other is simply to be brave and persistent and just keep telling the truth to those who will listen to it. I think it's pointless to argue with people whose minds are closed. You can't do that. Um, It's a waste of time. And even and online, I, moreover, some of the, the people that you're wrangling with may not even be people. You know, they may be mm-hmm. bots. I mean, I looked into one who was attacking a friend of mine. He was, he's a black guy she was attacking, this white woman, uh, accusing him of racism, you know. And um, I checked her out on – I checked her profile out, and it – there doesn't seem to be any such person, you know? Um, so I think there's a lot of that going on and it's probably the kind of thing that the event 201 people had in mind is that you create a kind of shadow army of, of fake, um, of tr- fake trolls, you know, to mm. distract and divide yeah. and take our time and so on. Arguing with the fools and agents is a waste of time. The thing is to spread the word which is becoming increasingly difficult. Find alternatives to the major platforms. Uh, push ultimately for platforms that are not privately owned, you know, something on the model of the original post office. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. I can't pretend it's going to be easy. But I also can't believe that it's impossible because what's in the works is so 
monumentally perverse and destructive. It really is so evil that I have a hard time believing it can succeed. That may be a leap of faith on my part, but it's what, it's what I think. And the more people are, are confronted with the evidence that the narrative is false, the stronger we become at acting to prevent it en masse. Now, some are skeptical as to whether that's even possible with crowd control technologies and so on. And it, it may not take the form of mass protests because mass protests have been weaponized now. You know, they've, they've, they've been used, they've been distorted. I know a lot of baby boomers who get all choked up when they see BLM rallies. They, they think it's, uh, you know, the march on the Pentagon in the 70s. <laughs> they're, they're wrong, you know. Yeah. This, is, this is permitted protest. This is state-sanctioned protest. These are protests blessed by Bill and Melinda Gates and Jeff Bezos and Jamie Dimon, you know. Uh, Goldman Sachs is telling us that Black Lives Matter, seriously. You know, Apple, Google, uh, Amazon, Black Lives Matter. Tell that to the black workers in Jeff Bezos's Amazon warehouses, you know, where they're constantly making 9-11 calls, 911 calls, because workers are keeling over from work speed-ups. Mitt Romney thinks Black Lives Matter, big investor in private prisons. I mean, the bad faith is you can't make it up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there are a lot more people than we realize who get that. Uh, you know, that, that's a very hopeful thing. There are a lot more people than we think who get it. Um, so, if, you know, I get fired or you know, God forbid something else. Um, you know, you, you, can't, you can't stop resistance as it spreads, you know, without becoming more draconian. Uh, you may have seen that uh, Heiko Schoening, the German yes. doctor, yeah. going to speak in London, was hauled off by the police before he could speak yeah. on no charge. This was outright, explicit, fascist police behavior, or yeah. they were following fascist orders. This is Britain, okay? This is Great Britain. This is not China. And this is a guy who was going to speak to an assembly of uh, British citizens out of a position of medical authority and experience, and they just arrested him. Now, that's scary on the one hand, but see, it's also a sign of desperation. Yes, yeah. And yes. that's, I think the fact that they're coming after me suggests that, you know, people are listening to me. Well, they're going to listen. They're going to look for other information. They're going to do that once they've understood that what they've been told is false. I think that the heart of the real revolutionary resistance is going to be the parents of vaccine-injured children. That's a huge population. And those many, many young people who've themselves been very badly damaged by HPV vaccines, the more vaccinations they give, the more of these toxic vaccinations they give, the bigger those numbers are going to get. Yeah. And that's a revolution and, that was already started. That was even before COVID, at least here in California and in some of the states that were really pushing for the vaccine mandates, 
we were already seeing a huge um, coming together and outcry about that um, in the state. So I right, completely agree with you about that. I think that's that's a huge segment of the population. And, you know, what I'm not sh- I don't know if they recognize that it's kind of a different ball game when you're talking about someone's children. When you're exactly. coming after people's children, the rules change. That's exactly right. That's that's something you don't do without encountering stiff resistance. And I think that uh, the gun control movement is actually an elite program to disarm the citizenry. I used to laugh that off as a, an NRA talking point, which it was. Mm-hmm. The, NRA, the NRA is a very corrupt organization. It's interested in you know, its financial relations with the gun industry. Mm-hmm. But there are also non-racist grounds for supporting the Second Amendment, which, by the way, um, gun rights was something that George Orwell firmly believed in. People Mm. don't know this. But in in the late 30s, he wrote a newspaper column uh, sparked by the rumor or the fear that the Nazis might invade England. And he spoke about the necessity of having the people be armed. He, wow. I'm paraphrasing. He said that, that, that the gun, that gun on the wall of a worker's flat or a farmer's cottage is a sign of freedom. Okay. That's George Orwell, wow. right? That's not Charlton Heston. <laughs> and I, I, you know, there's a reason the Chinese don't allow anybody to own guns. Or the Australians. Right. right the Australians. Um, so I, uh, I, I know a lot of black people who don't believe in gun control. And Muslims I know too. Uh, I mean, they want to protect mm-hmm. themselves yeah. from, uh, you know, racists and, and Islamophobes and so on. And, and why shouldn't they? Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, one hopes it doesn't come to like a civil war. I think that's in the works. I think that's the plan. I think that after the COVID crisis and the uh, BLM moment, and also the, the wildfires in California, yeah. Yeah. which are being uh, spun just categorically as caused by global warming. Well, we don't know that that's true. And, and if you look at the last year's fires, there's obvious evidence that they were weirdly selective, you know, that. Yeah. There were some weird patterns there. Definitely. Very weird patterns where a house would burst into flames and the car next to it and all the surrounding trees were unscathed. Right, the trees would be untouched. Yeah, yeah. That's well, and we know that there's been, there's been, you know, decades of mismanagement. You know, the Native Americans knew that you had to do controlled burns in order to keep it from just becoming this massive tinderbox. But right. somehow the people managing the California forests don't understand that and, you know, continue to let this stuff build up. So we get these just devastating, devastating fires. Well, yeah, but I, you know, I, we, we, I believe that we should always try to find the fuller context for these things. And I think one of the crucial aspects of the, those fires on the West coast is that they devastated um, millions of acres of farmland. Mm-hmm. And the I food supply. there's the food supply, the food supply. I recommend that people 
look at Ice Age Farmer, uh, which is a very, you know, it's this one guy does great work. He has put together those wildfires with these odd fires and explosions in Iowa, New Orleans, Essex in Great Britain, and then Beirut, where there was that huge nuclear explosion. That actually took out a major uh, grain storage facility. And the other three um, incidents did the same. So uh, if you want to control the population, you control the food supply. Right, right. Uh, You know, so we've already had a problem with, you know, horribly unhealthy food, which, you know, is loaded with uh, carcinogens and additives. And that makes people more susceptible to disease and other comorbidities. Um, I mean, aside from COVID-19. And I I think that all all these things together um, are are pushing us toward the uh, kind of dystopia I described before. And the election is going to be the occasion of some kind of civil war. A lot of people are, are anticipating that, yeah. Or, or some kind and, of dis- and, disruption in any case. Yeah, taking sides, you know. Uh, yeah, kind of depressed. I mean, I, I spent years in the election integrity movement. You know, I wrote this book, Fooled mm-hmm. Again, about the theft of the 2004 election. I edited another book called Loser Take All. It's a collection of essays on election theft by other people. And um, I, you know, drifted away from that movement which I still support wholeheartedly because it's a completely taboo subject and gets no traction unless you're claiming Russia stole the election for which there's no evidence. We, rat, we desperately need a voting system that's based on hand counted paper ballots and universal registration automatically on one's 18th birthday. There are things we could do, but it's not going to happen I am depressed to see that the election integrity movement has now largely morphed into a beat Trump movement. Mm. I have no doubt that that the Republicans will attempt to steal it because they have done that consistently. But uh, the Democrats have also shown themselves perfectly capable of stealing elections. They stole the nomination from Bernie Sanders twice, I think with Republican help. And he acquiesced, you know, I, I lost interest in him when he yeah. stayed silent after it happened the second time. I think Trump is completely right to say that if he thinks the election was um, rigged, he's not going to concede. And I would expect the same of Biden, you know, whoever's telling him what to say, because any polit- any candidate who believes has grounds to think that the count is, is illegitimate that the voting was distorted and subverted, has the right to refuse to accept the official outcome. I think that that's, I think Jill Stein did the right thing by, uh, you know, raising funds for those audits in the three swing states that Trump Mm. won. I don't think he actually won them. Um, So. Well, now they're going to have even more grounds to whoever wins they're going right. to make that claim. They're going to, they're, you know, there's even more grounds for making that claim. And 
whoever I, right. I just feel whoever whoever wins that's what they're gonna that's what the other side is gonna say that's right and and then God knows what'll happen you know uh, maybe it could be some kind of martial law I I don't really believe that Trump and the resistance are are fundamentally at odds I mean I'm I hope I'm wrong I know a lot of people who think wishfully that Trump is in some shrewd, erratic way, yeah. trying to resist what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I like that he appointed Scott Atlas, who's an extremely lucid mm-hmm. and well-informed person and a breath mm-hmm. of fresh air after Fauci. But knowing Trump's history, he was the, you know, the protege of Roy Cohn, you know, McCarthy's top aide and a real monstrous figure and a deep a swamp creature if there ever was one. Knowing Trump's whole history and his, you know, self-interest, his narcissism, uh, I, I, I just have trouble believing this is a real clash. I think it's a Punch and Judy show. Yeah. Uh, I do think that some of Trump's constituency, insofar as they distrust the bio-fascist regime, uh, are, you know, important and should not be completely politically marginalized. Uh, I see that certain Republican governors have taken a very admirable stand, like uh, the governor of North Dakota and uh, now um, DeSantis in Florida, Florida yeah. breaking lockdown and all kinds of masked Facebook friends are foaming at the mouth. Of, I can't see the phone, but you know what I mean? Um, they are, they think he's going to have everybody killed. You know, there's never been a, Nobody has ever been able to document a super spreader event. I, I've, I've never heard of one. Uh, over Memorial Day, the Lake of the Ozarks had like a huge turnout of tourists for the whole weekend. No surge, no spike. The BLM protests, no surge, no spike. Yeah. The Sturgis Bikers Rally right. and that bogus study that claimed that it was a super spreader event, that study was a joke. And the health officials in that state and the governor and other scientists all pointed out it was a joke based on computer modeling, based on cell phone data. I don't even know how they got that data. The whole thing was ridiculous. And then the example people always throw at you is this big wedding in Montreal after which six people died of COVID. But you look into that story and you discover the six people who died after COVID were not at the wedding. Hmm. So, you know, asymptomatic people don't infect others, certainly not out in the street. Yeah. Well, and what's becoming clear is that it's it's just follow wherever you are. If you're in a lockdown state or a non-lockdown state or some other country, the virus basically follows the same trajectory. You know, that's right. There's a spike, it comes down, just like every other virus, you know, in the history of humanity. So yes, there's going yes, to be a point yeah. where people, where you can't deny that, you know, where. Well, you can, you know. but, but on no <laughs> rational grounds. Yeah, I know. I have a colleague who, you know, avidly follows, you know, the, the SAGE committee in Britain, which, which is just a vaccine connected fear mongering machine thinks that they're, you know, uh, he thinks that they're reliable and he keeps talking about an S curve and saying that, you know, he's, this is a highly educated guy. 
S-curve. I've talked to epidemiologists say there's an S. What S? What is he talking about? What S-curve? You know, SARS, MERS, Hong Kong flu. There's never been an S-curve. It's exactly as you say. You know, the thing surges and then it declines, runs its course. It runs out of people to infect. It, It mutates and becomes weaker, right? That's what happens. The more people who are test positive, although the tests are a complete joke, yeah. the better, the better. Yeah. It makes most cases are asymptomatic and people um, are becoming immune to it without a vaccine. This is all so elementary, you know, knowing that healthy people have never been quarantined in any previous pandemic, not even the so-called Spanish flu. Yeah. They haven't it's been required to wear masks. There were a few cities out West during the that flu with that illness that didn't have mask ordinances. They wanted people to wear gauze on their faces. Ridiculous. But this is unprecedented. But you see, the fear, the fear of death, the terror, the panic has people with functional minds acting like morons. You know, they're, they're, they're sinking to their knees and they're begging for Bill Gates and Dr. Fauci to save them. They don't know anything about these guys' histories, you know, which are shocking. Uh, and if you say the kinds of things I'm saying to you now, uh, you're attacked, even in the classroom now, yeah. apparently. You can't say yeah. them. So, so we, this is a turning point. This is a real turning point. But I think we are obligated to look. We can look back at certain moments and all agree, you know, at this comfortable distance that say, oh, the acquiescence of the Germans is appalling. Those good Germans, how could they? How do they feel afterwards? What do they say? What do they say to themselves? What do they tell their children? What did they do? Yeah, right. True. Well, all these people who are pro-lockdown now, all these people who are vilifying unmasked people, all these people clamoring for vaccines, saying, I'm not going to go back into the classroom till there's a vaccine. These people are doing the exact same thing, the exact same thing. So what I'm suggesting is, I'm saying this not to you know, shame them because they can't be shamed. I'm saying it to remind ourselves that just as those who saw what was coming were obligated back then to speak out against it, however they could, so are we, right? So are we. We're obligated to do that too, okay? And to do it now. And we're doing it here and now. Yep. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, It's been a pleasure, Brittina. Yeah, this is... Yes, we will. We will um, stay in touch. I'm gonna I'm gonna stay on your list list serve, and I will post links to your fantastic essay, your list serve, your website. Um, yeah, keep speaking out. Thank you. And w- when will this air? Um, I should be able to get it up in the next. It won't go up today, but probably Monday or Tuesday, and I'll send you a All link. Right. Um, yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.